every generation, there is a chosen podcast. It alone will analyze the subtext, the allegory, and the clever Whedon-esque dialogue. It is Conversations with Dead People. Welcome to Conversations with Dead People, a postmortem podcast on the works of Joss Whedon. I'm your host, Paul Smith. And for the past two and a half years, um, I, with the help of guests from the worlds of fandom and academia, have made my way slowly but surely through the entire seven season run of the critically acclaimed television series Buffy the Vampire Slayer. So the next step, naturally, would seem to be diving into all five glorious seasons of the spin-off series angel and that will be happening but before we get there um in this sort of weird limbo of between series hiatus space or whatever i'm gonna look at some comics and uh, joining me are a couple of four color friends of the show dale guffey welcome back dale thank you so much it's great to be back with you always great to have you and uh, after far too long a time, I didn't realize it had been so long since I had you on here, uh, Vicki Willens-Navarro. Vicki, how you doing? Good. I'm so happy to be back. Yes. Yay. And um, you, okay, so I said, I said we'd be looking at some comics. Um, what I really meant is we'll be discussing Frey, <laughs> the, uh, the 2001 to 2003 limited series from Dark Horse Comics. There are a ton of other uh, comics in the sort of expanded Whedon verse that we could and and hopefully possibly someday will be covering. Um, plus, Joss has plenty of works in the comics field that don't have anything to do with Buffy or Angel or Firefly or any of that. Many of which I would love to discuss here at some point. But for today, unless I fail to keep my guests uh, wrangled, unless they break free and go off on their own. <laughs> Uh, we're just talking about Frey, the eight-issue miniseries from uh, 2001 to 2003, which actually was being published as seasons six and seven were happening. Actually, the eight-issue run of Frey lasted longer than season six and seven combined because of a very weird publishing hmm. schedule. Right. I believe that's true. Hang on. Uh, Vicky looked skeptical. <laughs> Am I right? <laughs> Um, yeah, so the last issue, issue eight of this came out August 6th. Okay, no, Buffy season seven last, lasted two. No, that's right. Season seven ended in May of 2003. Chapter eight of this comic came out in August 2003. Yeah, but look so. at when chapter seven mm -hmm. came out. When did seven come out of Frey? Seven came out. So the big gap is between six and seven. Six and seven. Okay, not seven and eight. Chapter six came out in March of 2002. Chapter seven came out April of 2003. There we go. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, and I don't know about you guys, but I was reading it as it was coming out. So uh -huh. Uh -huh. I 
had a year. I had 13 months to wait between issues six and seven. Well, and let's just oh, say that's wow. one thing we can't blame on Fox. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Um, okay. Before, before we really dive in on Frey, um, I asked you both to join me here because you were both comics people. So let's talk about just some general comics, like what your history with comics is. And if, um, is Frey the thing that made you dive into comics because you're Weed Knights first, or have you always been comics fans or Dale, go ahead. Oh, okay. Um, okay. I read comics as a kid, but mm -hmm. then there was this long pause in that. I actually got back into comics in the mid nineties with X-Men. And um, I have a soft spot in my heart for that period of, of the, the X-Men universe. And I know you said you were going to try to keep your guests wrangled, but yeah, <laughs> I know we're I gonna, can't. We're going to talk about astonishing X-Men and Kitty Pride at some point. Well, that is, in that this is, conversation. that is certainly one of the things that I would like to do an episode about at some point. So. Um, and, but from there, I really got into Sandman I got into Neil Gaiman and oh, Vertigo. You mean, you mean these right here? Yes. Yes. Um, so I was I was already into And from there, I got into comics that had done some things that were totally outside my experience. Things things like Mouse mm -hmm. by, by Siegelman and uh, Facts from Sarajevo by Kubert. So, I, I mean, I already had a background in comics way before I got into Frey. But having become a Wedonian, it was a natural progression to to get into the Apocrypha here. <laughs> yeah. Um, Vicki, what about you? Um, hmm. Well, I read comics as a kid a little bit, and they were mostly like my mother's comics so it was all archie and veronica uh and they were all at my grandmother's house and that was like all i had access to and they were super great and i read them all and i was done because i didn't know how to get more of them and they were my mother's, so i figured that these were never made again you know <laughs> that sort of thing like all of her old seven inches um that I had these things and that they had expired. Archie and uh, Veronica still going strong to this day. So Right. Um, I did encounter Mouse in high school mm -hmm. uh, as part of my creative writing class, which was really great. Um, but I didn't really start getting into like reading comics until fairly recently. And Frey was one of the things that did that. Um, and some really good friends that led me into some other like series and paths and I could read, uh, why the last man and fables oh, yeah, and, yeah, yeah. you know, Great just stuff. really opening up a lot of doors. So my comics knowledge is actually really sporadic and strange, like, because I've just gone into it more like as an adult and have had to go back and catch up on things. And then it's just following wherever I feel like at that particular point in yeah. time. So um, I'm all over the place, but they're so great. Well, it's, 
uh, in today's day and age, it's hard not to be all over the place because the market is so vast. Um, when, when we were all kids, I also started reading comics as a kid. Um, however, the difference is I've always, I've continued, I've read comics my whole life. And, um, you know, in the good old days when I was a kid, um, <laughs> comics were sort of a niche market. Um, and now it's, it's a bit of a mixed blessing. It is a, it is a vast, massive, like multi-headed beast of an industry um, and it is impossible for any sane person to keep up with, with, you know, everything. So you really do have to kind of pick and choose. And that means that, um, you know, everybody has their particular lanes in comics that they follow. But mm -hmm. um, we've already had mention of Astonishing X-Men, obviously, uh, written by Joss Whedon, uh, a thing that I want to do an episode about. So we can talk about it a little bit tonight, but it will get its own episode eventually. Um, and mentioned... Sandman, which is a must. You've mentioned yeah. Why the Last Man, which is a must. Yes. Uh, you mentioned Fables, which at least the first 10 volumes to me were a must. I think it kind of went off the rails after that. But um, Saga. Saga is another mm -hmm. one that... Uh, so on my, on my regular, my more or less weekly podcast, Gobbly Geek, we talk about comics all the time. And we've done like a year-long exploration of Sandman. We've talked about why. We have not talked about Fables. But we're planning to do a saga thing, but we're waiting for that series to finish. We're not. Yeah. We're we're not going to start talking about it because uh, that also has sort of a sporadic publication history. Um, we're in the back half of it right now, but we're probably still a couple years away before we can talk about that. But that is also extraordinary. Um, Nikki, remind us what you do for Dragon Con. You do something at uh, Dragon Con related to comics. Oh, the uh, the conference, the Comics and Popular Arts Conference at Dragon Con. Okay. Um, I don't know how long I've been involved with it anymore. Time has no meaning anymore. It's <laughs> fine. Time has zero meaning now. But it's super great. Um, and I didn't get to participate it was virtual this year, of course. Right. Um, and I didn't participate at all because I just, my father had just died and I just tapped out. Uh, but everybody says it went really well, like all things considered and starting to do like planning um, for next year, but very tentatively because what is, what does the world even look like anymore? Right. Can right. we count on anything? So, you know, we'll, we'll just see. But it's super great, um, and it's we refer to ourselves frequently as the academic track, even though we're not an official track. We work with all the other tracks, but we do a lot of comics panels. Um, we do some um, some science fiction and fantasy panels. I think we've done some YA panels, diversity panels, of course. Uh, we've done roundtables. Uh, that focus on race, sexuality, and gender in comics that have been, like, incredibly popular at Dragon Con, like standing room only kind of stuff. Uh, and we've had some really excellent speakers come in for some of those, like Kelly Sue DeConnick and Matt Fraction came. Excellent. Um, yeah, yeah, and that was really amazing. Uh, and it's it's really fun. And doing it at Dragon Con is so great because you get that really – because, like, Dragon Con is such a smart, 
fandom and such a smart crowd. So going in with like academia, which can be very intimidating for people, doesn't phase Dragon Con attendees, which is super great. Like everybody's like in for it. Like, yes, let's talk about these things. And it's it makes for really good panels. That's awesome. I have only physically attended one Dragon Con and it was specifically to meet it was uh to meet James Marsters between Buffy season seven and Angel season five, uh, and to invite him to our wedding. My fiance, my then fiance and I <laughs> actually handed him a handwritten letter invitation to our wedding, which he chose not to attend, but he was still very gracious and kind. Um, but that was a nightmare. I don't like crowds. I don't do crowds. And Dragon Con uh, was, pushed me to my limits. So I have not physically mm-hmm. attended a Dragon Con since then. Um, but if this whole virtual thing happens again, if next year it turns out to be virtual, if next year even happens, if next year turns out to be a thing <laughs> and it's virtual, I may uh, be looking into that. Um, and if you're ever looking for some very not academic, not very smart, but enthusiastic guests to be on virtual panels, hey, I'm right here. Um, I did. Uh, Dale, you attended. Um I ran the Whedon track at the Alabama Phoenix Fest. The yes, yes. Sh- short lived. It only had. I was only involved in three, for three years of that, and then it sort of fell apart. But uh, so I've run a much smaller, nowhere near the Dragon Con scale. But I've run a track uh, specifically about Whedon, and we got some comics talk in on that. And uh-huh. I managed to put myself on a panel sitting right next to Larry Hama, which is one of my proudest accomplishments. But anyways. I really enjoyed Phoenix. I, I really enjoyed Phoenix Fest. It was fun. It that was, fun. was in fact awesome. Yeah. And I, yeah, I mean, I've, I too have done Dragon Con in person once and I had a fantastic time, but I'm with you about the crowds. <laughs> it was nuts. Because yeah, you get to a point where it's like, that's just too many people for me. I cannot imagine San Diego. Yeah. I, mm. I just, Pre-COVID San Diego would have left me curled up in a corner somewhere, just rocking back and forth. Right. Um, I really enjoy seeing the um, seeing the costumes. Of course, the cosplay is fantastic, but also seeing the the panels and and the yes. different tracks that are going on. But um, I know my limits. Right. And yeah. So I'll that. I'll use that as a segue to just mention i i may have mentioned it on this podcast before i can't remember but um the so fray is written by joss with a pencil art by carl moline and inks Mm. by andy owens um well for a few years in the 90s uh the the late 90s early 2000s um my best friend was andy owens the inker on fray and um there's a whole story about how that happened i I and a couple other friends were trying to create our own little independence comic, independent comics thing. And I was a writer and I had a couple artists and another writer. And anyways, we met all sorts of people who, including Andy through that, who have gone on to become actual comics professionals. Whereas I, the person who started the whole thing, <laughs> sitting in this room, surrounded by my haunted pop Funko monstrosities. <laughs> um, anyways, so 
I actually got to sit with Andy in his studio when he was inking Frey. As Frey was, as he was receiving the penciled pages, I got to watch him do the inking on this. Um, and uh, I believe he showed me, he didn't show me a lot, but I believe he showed me some uh, script, little script pages. I, I didn't get to read the scripts ahead of time, but anyways, the the segue there was because he for years, Andy for years, tried to twist my arm and get me to go to San Diego, and I was like, no, no, I just, it's it's <laughs> it's not going to happen, Andy. I'm not going to do it. And that was before. I mean, that was the late '90s. It was pretty huge then. It's I can't even imagine going to it, like now. Well, I mean, now I certainly can't imagine going to it. Um, <laughs> but it's only gotten bigger since then. So, yeah, my well, uh, my convention going days are over. Well, I'm trying to get you at conferences now. <laughs> I know, I know you are. Uh huh, uh huh, uh huh. I'm just saying, Swapaka. Yes. It, it's virtual this year. Come on. I mean, virtual is a pretty easy. I mean, you can tempt me with the virtual stuff. So I'm just saying, and Vicky. Looking at you, too. Oh, my. Southwest uh, Popular and American Culture Association. I'm, I've been involved in that. That's Oddly enough, that was my first conference years back. And I'm an area chair there this year. Um, oh, that's so cool. It is, isn't it? <laughs> that's awesome. It that was is. A, that was I'm, such a beautiful, honest moment right there. I'm glad I got I, to witness that. I am. I'm really excited about this. I mean, I'm not going to be be falsely modest or whatever about it. I'm excited about this. Um, so we'll 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 talk. We'll okay. talk. I'll put uh, I'll put the links that you gave me previously, Dale. I'll put the same links in the show notes for this if anybody Spot. wants to follow up on that. Okay. So enough of the preamble, I guess. Um, this is when uh, normally I'd drop in a spoiler warning to let new listeners, if there are any new listeners joining us, know that uh, we'll be getting all meta and explainy about both television shows uh, and how you should probably watch those before listening to this silly podcast as we ramble on. Um, and even though tonight we're just talking about funny books, um, I make no guarantee that we're not going to be freely spoiling everything that's ever happened in the various Whedon verses. <laughs> As we go. So that spoiler warning stands. Do the right thing or proceed at your own risk. So um, with all of that taken care of, uh, ladies, if you're ready, let's go to work. I'm good. Right. I'm good. So who wants to start? Vicky does. Vicky does. Oh, me. <laughs> Thanks for volunteering, Vicky. <laughs> all right. Um, I... I love Frey. I love this comic. Um, I love everything about it. And one of the things that struck me the first time... Oh, I've got so many notes here, I can't even see which ones I want. <laughs> um, one of the things that struck me the first time I read it, and that struck me again the second time reading it, is... I think that a lot of the things that go on in Frey deal with trauma. And yeah. I think that trauma is something that Whedon is weirdly good at, but never gets, it always gets kind of like 
shuffled over to the side or like it's just like one episode or a couple of episodes like even if it's the focal point for a character and it just kind of stays over the like like in the margins which is really interesting because I think that he has a really solid understanding it's really interesting how he does it and it's never really foregrounded I think this is the most foregrounded I've ever seen trauma in Whedon because like you get a little bit in Angel with and obviously Faith yeah um just in general and then there's like one episode in dollhouse that is never ever revisited <laughs> and that one drives me crazy because i'm like yes more of this and it's like oh bye we're moving on to whatever else um and so that struck me again and i think that in here one of the things that's really interesting is that it's done through the idea of not being complete like oh, nice. being a partial person and you're only uh you're you're just not whole and i'm just going to keep going to this place cuz i got really excited when i made this connection okay so and i feel that it's also deeply feminist here because the eldest son got the heritage mm-hmm. which is the most like you know, and what she gets, and this is something I hadn't paid attention to or noticed as much until I read it this time, but she, her tattoo is a biohazard symbol. Yeah. 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 So not only is she, um, dangerous, but she's also the waste because biohazardous is biohazard is used to signify waste as well. Yeah. So the eldest son gets the heritage. She's the the refuse and also the strength and the power and it's a really interesting dynamic that gets set up here. I hadn't and even so, thought of it in terms of the waste aspect I hadn't of it. Either. I was thinking I was thinking of hazardous materials is how I was thinking of it, but yeah, that's good. That's a good catch. Well, I used caused... to work in a hospital lab. So okay. whenever I see biohazard, I think trash. There you go. <laughs> there you go. Well, and and for for me, I had never made that connection. I'd thought about it in terms of hazardous material and dangerous material, but not I hadn't gone where Vicky had with it. And I think that's that gives it a whole new level there for me. Um what you said about not being complete is something that first attracted me when I began reading Frey. It was this idea of, of twinning because Whedon loves to play with that, whether it's with, with uh, doppelgangers or whether it's with actual, um, I mean, in Dollhouse, you of course have the person who is then split into all of these different personalities. But in Frey, he makes it super obvious because she's actually a twin. And um, the the first in-depth dive I took to, into Frey was actually about uh, the twin relationship and how in some cultures, twins are almost revered, mm-hmm. but in an awful lot of other ones, twins are just spooky and creepy and um, a sign of ill omen because 
quite frankly, twins are not real. I, I mean, they're natural, <laughs> but they're they're weird. <laughs> twins are just weird. I I I, I was really both apprehensive. I was both apprehensive and super excited for what dark place you were about to go with that, Dale. Uh, well, and and the fact that the the her twin brother is Hearth, which you know I'm all about the names. Yes, I, I've always been all about the names, and you know Hearth to me signifies home. Right, Hearth and home, and Hearth is not home. <laughs> no. Um, Arth is not home. Before, you can't trust Whedon. <laughs> no, you cannot. No, uh, Vicky, <laughs> Vicky, you mentioned that he, you know, he knows a thing or two about trauma. Yeah, he traumatizes fans constantly, repetitively, <laughs> over and over ad nauseum. He's very good with trauma. Um, mm -hmm. yeah. Before we continue, I was hoping one of you would do this, but I suppose it's my show, so I'm going to make an effort to summarize like what this book is <laughs> um for those for for anyone okay, who, I'm, I'm just sitting back and seeing where this goes i'm even on the best of days uh i am terrible at doing this but so Frey is a futuristic story it's set approximately 200 years in the future like post buffy the vampire slayer um there it, it's a very sci-fi world it's got a lot shares a lot of elements with um I mean, uh, I think of the fifth element with all the flying cars. I think of got to have flying cars. I think of a little bit of uh, Blade Runner in there, though not quite as like stylistically dark. Um, even some of the there were possibly some kernels of a good idea, but by and large, it was pretty terrible. Uh, Marvel twenty ninety nine stuff. Um, when you're looking at, I specifically, I'm thinking of the fact that uh, the city that Frey lives in has the uppers and the lowers. Um, so these skyscrapers have grown. The city has grown to such heights that all of the rich and important people that everyone cares about live way up high. And if you're in the slums down below at street level in the shadows, nobody gives a hell about you, gives a damn about you. Um, are you showing us something, Dale? No, no. Okay. I'm, I'm thinking. Okay. I'm thinking. <laughs> um, sorry. Anyway, so it's I'll the, try not to do that. It's the story of Malaka <laughs> Frey, who doesn't realize that she's a slayer. There hasn't been any mad. There have been no magic or demons or anything like that for almost two hundred years, um, and uh, so she has. She's just a. She's a thief, um, and she is very strong and athletic. But she just assumes that she's a natural talent and doesn't know anything about slayers. And she has a twin brother who th she believes is dead. Uh, but we come to learn that he's not dead. And yeah, I don't know why I'm being coy with spoilers. We've already talked about it. She get the Slayer abilities were split between them in the womb. So she has not had the benefit of the whole Slayer dreams or whatever. The, the subconscious sense of her connection to the Slayer line. She just has the strength and all of that. Whereas Hearth, her brother, was the one that got all the weird dreams. Uh, anyways, sure. I'll stop there. <laughs> that's what it is um and there is also an older sister and there is an older sister yes which actually is a great i love that relationship yeah i yeah. his his writing so it's been a minute since i've revisited astonishing x-men so this statement i make i'm about to make may not hold once i revisit that but um at the moment 
uh, I feel like this is his tightest. This was the very first comic he ever did. This was his his first foray into writing comics. He was he was also a lifelong comics fan and always wanted to write them, but this was the first time. And I feel like it's some of the tightest scripting that I think maybe he's ever done in his comics writing. Um, well, I okay, I I actually agree with you on that. And I mean, I'm a fan of his run on Astonishing. Yeah. I, I really am a fan of that because he finally gets to write Kitty Pryde, who, <laughs> yes. who he loves passationately. One of the one of the uh, inspirations for Buffy the Vampire. For Star. Buffy, for Buffy. But I think Frey, because he wasn't playing in anybody else's sandbox, he didn't have to follow anybody else's rules. I think Frey is more tightly plotted. And, um, okay, I'm just going to say it. Frey also makes uh, a crossover appearance in season eight of Buffy. Mm -hmm. And I will be the first person to say this and people can, can leave nasty comments if they want to. I think season eight is just a hot mess. Well, sure. You don't have to read the nasty comments. Exactly. I'm the one. one (laughs) No, I agree with you. I, I think season eight had some great ideas in it. And I mean, it's, it's not, it's not beyond redemption or anything, but I think he got so, um, he had to, I think he got a little giddy at being able to write things without worrying about how to film them on a budget. Right. Yes. That he just did some things that were just weird because he could. Um, but yeah, I think Frey is good and tight. And what I was thinking about when you, asked me earlier what I was doing when you were comparing it to Marvel's 2099, the world of fray with the high up and the down in the depths. Mm-hmm. It's, it's funny. I immediately go to Fritz Lang's metropolis oh. instead. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Because seriously, science fiction always goes back to metropolis <laughs> yes. one way or another, right. whether it's flying cars or what it's in metropolis. True. I mean, for God's sakes, the opening credits of Futurama are from Metropolis. <laughs> Good point. Good point. Go watch Metropolis. Yes, absolutely. I need to do an episode about Metropolis. Why has that not happened in the 10 years I've been doing podcasts? See, you just keep making notes on these things. I, I just keep throwing things out so that you'll have me back. <laughs> you just keep giving me more work. <laughs> That's what you just keep giving me more work. Um well, you know, I don't want you frequenting pool halls. Oh, thank you. So thank I'm you. trying to keep you out. I appreciate that. Good, good looking out. Um, so uh, regular listeners of this podcast or anybody who has talked to me uh, in person for more than 10 minutes knows that I adore Faith from Buffy the Vampire Slayer. And if I'm not mistaken, and if either of you know better, please correct me. If anybody listening knows better, please correct me. I know you will. Um, if I'm not mistaken... Uh, Joss's sort of original idea, like Frey's, Frey evolved from some faith ideas that he had, um, which is why the character of Malacca Frey is pretty similar to Faith. Um, I don't know how far down that path he ever went. Like, I, I, I don't think he ever, he may not even have pitched it, but I'm pretty sure that I read he had been thinking about things to do with faith and that led to fray so i don't know nobody's correcting me i assume i'm 100 percent right there well sure 
Faith and Frey are my favorite slayers. So that makes total sense to me. Uh, It might be too early to do this, but since we're there, I'm going to say one of the, one of the very few, because I 99% adore Frey, but one of the very few minor sins it commits is the, (laughs) I don't understand why the, Buffy creators, including Joss himself, cannot get the Slayer line right. <laughs> Why they cannot accept the fact that Buffy, by the end of the series, was not the end-all be-all of the Slayer line. It was fate. Right. And this book consistently refers to... Now, I, I can fan-wank it and grant them a little bit of it's been 200 years since any of this stuff went down, and nobody really knows what they're talking about in this book. But regardless, this book repeatedly states that... Uh, there hasn't been a Slayer called in 200 years. And I don't know, even though I don't think it ever names Buffy, it very clearly is alluding to Buffy. It's it's mm-hmm. all about, what what is it, the, the girl in the sunlit city? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, I mean, they, they make repeated references, so help me to her being blonde. Yes. And you so, get a, you yeah, get a couple of... Yeah, Buffy, not you, Faith. You get a couple of panels of sort of out of focus dreamlike images of what that must have been like. And it's obviously Buffy that you're seeing. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Faith is just forgotten. <laughs> Nobody cares about faith, it's but uh, anyways. Uh, That's wh- one of the things that like, like with season eight and the crossover and everything that happens, like I think where season eight like starts to fall down for me is it does too much to try to force the next step to getting to the Frey universe. And it's like, this is supposed to be like 200 years later. We don't have to do this right now, but (laughs) we're going to do this right now, even though it's going to be like a hot mess in places and we're not going to reconcile some of these questions. Because if you're going to make, you know, the moves to how we get to the Frey universe, like you can start answering that, like what happens to Faith? What happens to all the Slayers that get tapped? Like, because this only makes mention of Buffy and they don't really deal with that. Well, Well, (laughs) and I always got annoyed because the Frey world is a world without magic. Right. And oh my gosh, they turned somersaults around that. Mm -hmm. For me, anyway. And I I agree. You got a 200 year gap here. You didn't have to solve, yeah. So you didn't have to put two hundred years of history in season eight. Yeah, like you could have just like moved on with season mm-hmm. eight and gone to the next step. You don't have to immediately just because you're doing in comics doesn't mean everybody's going to be like, okay, Frey. Like right. I think everybody would have been like, okay, Buffy. Right. Like and Faith and you know all of the potentials now slayers and been more interested in that but it seemed like there was like this like solid determination like guys we got to get to fray and, and let's get, let's keep in mind when they were putting together season 8 they apparently decided dawn as a centaur was the way to go <laughs> so wasn't she a maybe giant not their, maybe not their best thinking wasn't she a giant for a while too yes yeah man i don't i i don't want to just continue to pick at this scab for any fans of season eight out there. And Vicki, I think you're, I think you're at least kinder to it than either Dale or I are, but um, yeah. damn, that thing was a mess. 
Man, I did not. And I do. I really think they were giddy at the idea that they could have these things drawn without worrying about how to film them. Yeah, which is so that's another thing that's great about Frey is that um, it also benefits from not having a television budget Um, Mm -hmm. like he does Haddon, which is what they refer to. It's what they call the city they live in. And obviously that's a, a future slang name for Manhattan. But um, you've got this massive city with the soaring skyscrapers and the the shadowy depths of the lower of, of like downtown or whatever and flying cars and giant dragons with wombs of darkness and all this stuff that happens. Um, but it's not it's not as massive and overwhelming and unhinged as I feel like mm-hmm. at least season eight. I don't I, I honestly don't remember it if I made it past season eight, whatever, whenever the damn twilight thing happened is when I was like, I'm out. Yeah. That was eight. That was eight. Okay. Um, I did read the, for a while I read the faith and angel comic and that was legitimately like actually genuinely super good. But Mm -hmm. um, anyways, Uh, yeah. Frey could have potentially had all of the same like unrestrained problems that I feel like season eight suffered from, but Maybe it's just because it was his first foray into the, into the you know format. Well, but um... well, and it's it's a lot more focused, and I like the way that it it creates this world, but it doesn't necessarily answer these questions. Like it doesn't really talk about why magic is gone now. Mm-hmm. Right. And for me, as a reader, I don't need to know why. Right. I just need to know that the universe has changed in order to understand this story, and and that has been set up really well. Like, and I know enough about the Slayer, you know, the Slayer lineage and mythologies and the stories where I can grasp what's going on here. And I don't need to have like every single hole and gap filled in, which is like what, what I think he starts doing with eight is trying to like, and I don't, I don't need it. It's not necessary. Like a Slayer in a world without magic where she does not have her heritage is enough for me like whoa what that's amazing and she she has yeah. all the strength she has the scythe because the scythe is awesome yes and she fights anyway and that's enough like it is solid like i like that and i feel like all this like going back later and trying to get all super explainy with it just isn't it's like well i mean that's great but i don't need the explaininess i agree well and and I, I agree. And he did some things with this that I just truly love. I mean, we we have no watcher. As much as I love Giles, the the we have no watcher. Well, we, yet, we have a watcher for a couple panels. And, well, okay, okay. <laughs> and then the smoke of the watcher lingers, maybe Point. for a couple of more. Point. But um. We do. We we have this slayer who doesn't know she's a slayer, who is then being essentially guided by a demon. Mm-hmm. What? That's awesome. It is awesome. Sign me up. And um, I feel like so Urkon is the the demon quote unquote watcher that she ends up mm-hmm. having that sort of leads her into this world and trains her, and um. He's a great character and he is visually interesting and he is significantly different from both Giles and Wesley 
but not in a way that felt like, not in a way that felt forced. It didn't, at no point did I read this and feel like, oh, this is, this is him just saying, well, I've already done Buffy. What's the opposite of that? And I've already done Giles. What's the opposite of Giles? It just, I don't know. It, again, I go back to the tight scripting and the, the fantastic storytelling and character design in this, um, because yeah. even though it very obviously spins out of and ultimately ends up, you know, spinning back in and informing uh, the television series, um, it it still feels of a piece. It still feels contained and significant in its own right. And I would be fascinated to talk to someone who has only read Frey and never watched yeah. Buffy. I'm sure those people exist. If you're listening to this right now and you're one of those people who has only read Frey and not never watched Buffy, um, please uh, <laughs> write to us. Uh, cons at dead or cons with dead at gmail.com. But well, uh, and what you mentioned about character design, I'd like to visit that a little bit. Urkon mm -hmm. um, is for my money, one of the most visually interesting characters uh, in in part, okay, Whedon had already clearly established through characters like Whistler and Doyle that demons didn't have to be evil, bad, nasty, gross, set on destroying the human race. Right. So I always love that because you got this extra layer in there about who was who was evil and what evil looked like. Right. And did some neat things with that. Um, I also, I, I'll just, I'll just say it because this would have been difficult to do on TV, but again, because it's in a different medium, you're able to, to do some, some different things and do them well. I mean, did anybody else have the reaction when they first encountered this character of going, huh, a demonic bighorn sheep? Weird. <laughs> with it. <laughs> With his upper lip torn off. With his upper lip torn off. That's to me. I don't even think when I think of Urkon, I don't even think of the horns or the massive cloven hooves or whatever, which obviously all those things are there. The The distinctive feature of Urkon that I cannot get out of my head is he probably looked actually he probably didn't look that dissimilar to Giles when Giles was turned into whatever the name of that demon was that Giles was. Oh, nice. Nice catch. Um <laughs> Now just take Giles in his demon form and grab his upper lip and just and peel the top off. part of his face off. And there you go. There's Urkon. But makes me well, wonder. And it's funny. All of us right now are like doing. I, I know. I'm, yeah. I'm trying to imagine how that, what, what that would be like. Wow. <laughs> um, well, let's talk. Okay. Well, let's get into the visuals for a minute. I, I feel like we need okay. to, we need to talk about the characters like I wait I don't know if we've said that much about uh, Malaka or even Hearth um or what's it what's the older sister's name Aaron Aaron thank you um Aaron. so obviously we need to talk about them but we we've mentioned the visuals and and what this looks like and uh the scale of it and all that Carl Moline I believe at the time that this came out was pretty much unknown I don't this wasn't his first thing but I mean it kind of kind of was and his, I don't know what his career looks like today. I don't know if he's working on anything 
today as we speak, but I know he had a career for a while after this and his artwork, um, is extraordinary. And obviously artists, the longer they work, the more they can hone their craft and sort of the better their art gets. I'm not sure that's true for Carl. I think he was pretty much at the top of his game, uh, at the time of Frey and the stuff that he did after he had a consistent look and art style. But, um, yeah. like I don't, I don't look at things that Carl did, you know, three, four five years later and think, Oh man, he really improved on that. No, he was great from the beginning. Yeah. I mean, the art in this is really, really solid. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, from the splash pages to honestly, the backgrounds mm -hmm. there's, I, I mean, he has a definite, look and a definite eye on this and and one quite frankly that i find appealing when when they designed Frey, whedon was really upfront about her not having the whole late 90s thing about boobs being bigger than her head <laughs> right which i appreciate not not just for the fact that for some of her acrobatics she was going to be too top heavy otherwise right right and that just wasn't going to work <laughs> aerodynamically speaking <laughs> but I, I like that she wasn't designed to have that whole cheesecake look going on yeah you know her clothes tend to be practical for example as opposed to okay look scarlet witch is one of my favorite characters ever <laughs> that headpiece is just ridiculous Mar marvel had a thing about headpieces on their oh yeah on their oh, women yeah, yeah, superheroes yeah. for a while well, to be fair, I also like Gambit, and Gambit's thing is just ridiculous. There's there's no peripheral vision going on there, yeah. which, for a thief, right. you need to see what's coming up on the side. <laughs> right. I'm just saying. Um, um, but I did. I always... I don't know. There's something about the look of Frey. It, some of it's the hair. Yeah, she's got the dark hair. Well, here's a question. I always assumed she has dark hair. Uh, and she colors the tips, the ends of it, uh, sort of a magenta or whatever. So it looks like black blue hair on top. And then the ends of it are all kind of pink and purplish. But which is the natural color? <laughs> hmm. She's a biohazard. That's Who true. Knows? Maybe that is her natural color. Maybe that's her. Maybe she's a ratty. Oh, maybe. The radiation just gives her bicolored hair oh and maybe like the biohazard symbol is put on everybody that i don't know we don't see it on the fish guy well i mean can you but, tattoo you a know, fish you can probably tattoo a fish but i don't you know probably, <laughs> but you can't tuna fit no uh. you can tuna fish you can't tune a piano <laughs> jokes people we got jokes thank um, you thank you we're here all week the the but um, you are in a world where you have these, you have mutants, yeah. but these are not like super powered X-Men mutants. These are fish people. Right. You have Lou who's missing an arm and who has a dead eye. Yeah. Poor, you adorable know, this, Lou. Poor, adorable Lou. There has to be one in every Whedon Yes, at least property. one. Doesn't yeah. there? Doesn't there? Um. But you you do you have so oddly enough Urkon kind of blends, yeah, in this world. Well, and that's the other the other thing is they have so they um, I should have had oh my gosh what's his name is it Michael Smith uh, that did Slayer Slang yeah 
Um, uh, Allen. Allen. Michael Allen. No. Was it not Michael Allen? I don't know. Man. Man, he was at North Carolina State. I he was, know that one. He was on the damn podcast. Michael Adams. Adams. That's Good it. Good Lord. Um, sorry. sorry, Michael. <laughs> so sorry. Uh, could have had him on this podcast, too, because this it's a it's a future world, and Joss throws all sorts of interesting slang in here. Um, like the raddies, so they refer to, to mutants, people who have been irradiated, and, and uh, like... Um, toy. Toy. As a, I didn't even... I forgot that. I didn't even write that down toy. on my list. That's... Uh, how do they use that? That means something is messed up, or... or yeah. Um, yeah. Um, Noram is what they refer to, I assume, North America. Versi. Does anybody know what that is? What's the context of Versi? Uh, so Haddon, H-A-D-D-Y-N, is what they call Manhattan, I'm guessing. Uh-huh. Uh, Noram is North America. And Versi, I think, is the the area of Haddon that she lives in. Oh. But I couldn't figure out what that, like, what word was truncated into Versi. Univer- oh, I don't know. University is the only thing I could come up with, but I don't. Maybe it's Brooklyn. Let's say it's Brooklyn. Sure, sure. <laughs> um, Why not? Uh, but if we're wrong, a listener will tell us. Sure. Yeah. Well, they'll tell me. Um, lurks. But, is, lurks is the other oh, thing that lurks, I was getting to. And lurks. So we we know how much Whedon loves language, uh-huh. and we especially see that, of course, in Firefly. Michael Smith is the Michael Smith is the <laughs> the Christian, Christian rock singer. Yeah. I'm so sorry. I'm hung up on why I got Michael Adams' name wrong. I apologize. <laughs> But, um, you know, we especially see it in in Firefly when yeah. he's coming up th- with this odd patois mm-hmm, right. of Chinese and English and honestly, Pennsylvania Dutch <laughs> is in. No, I'm se- it actually is in there. Um, OK, I believe you. It's he loves he loves words. He loves the sound of them. Mm-hmm. He loves messing with them. And did I read Frey before? Yeah, I read Frey before I saw Firefly. Okay. So this is the the weird language of his that I experienced before I hit the verse. Right. Um. Versi. <laughs> See. Huh. <laughs> now it's yeah. A, yeah. Sorry, I'm just kind of stuck there. And I bet I bet anything it is actually tied up with one of the, with an area around one of the universities. Yeah. Um So when you're when, world building is one of my very favorite things in fiction and um uh-huh. I can I can forgive a lot uh like sticking to the world of comics if the art was crappy and I didn't like any of the character like basically Everything about this could have sucked, but if the world building was compelling or, you you know, unique, if there was something about the world building that captured me, I can forgive just about everything in order to immerse myself in that world. It just so happens that in this, I didn't have to forgive anything because uh, the world building is fantastic along with the art and the characters and all of that stuff. Um, And the, the sort of slang, this, uh, this future slang, um, the new Slayer slang uh, is part of that world building and see it all the time in sci-fi and especially comics. When you go to a future world and a writer just needs to come up with some slang to put Mm -hmm. in his character's mouths. um, It doesn't always work. Sometimes it's really 
ham-fisted and and awkward mm-hmm. and stupid but this it all sounds even though some of the words sound silly like raddies is a weird word to say out loud this is probably the first time i've spoken that word out loud and it is kind of funny but uh in context while you're reading the book and seeing these characters use that word it just feels natural i like so. rocket ship for awesome yes like when they're like oh that's yeah. so rocket ship i'm like yes it is that's a good one too yeah um all right before we get too far out let's let's talk about the characters and and who we like and why we like them i mean we should obviously start with frey what about malaka frey makes her um vicky you said faith and malaka frey are your two favorite slayers how does how does frey make the cut Uh, i like that she she's a fighter who fights like, and I know that Buffy is also a fighter that fights, but she doesn't have the same resources. Mm-hmm. She doesn't have the family. She doesn't have half of her Slayer heritage. She doesn't have the Scoobies. She, I mean, she has had a lot taken from her, and Urkon even takes more from her. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And she fights anyway. Like, and it's, it's, it's really badass. <laughs> it is um, badass, yes. <laughs> but it's one of those things where, and I feel like Faith is very similar. Like, Faith is constantly told that she is, like, the lesser slayer, or the slayer that doesn't matter to the extent that when she gets the size, she's like, it feels like it was meant for me, so it was probably meant for you. Yeah. I mean, and that is Faith's, like, like, summation for her entire experience as a slayer almost yeah and you know malaka frey has a very similar experience i mean her brother as the eldest son inherits you know her heritage like really and she still continues she persists despite everything it is hearth older there's a there at one point, they say that one of them is older by 20 minutes. Was it Hearth? Hearth. Okay, it's Hearth him. was older. Okay, okay. Um, and it says in that line, he got the heritage. And I immediately went to, you know, that. Like, the, the eldest son and all of the archaic crap. Right. <laughs> I mean, usually, yeah, earlier Dale was talking about how in some... She almost went to a really dark place when she was talking about twins and how the, sometimes twins are viewed as as weird yeah. and off-putting or whatever. Uh, in a lot of those uh, time periods or cultures, um, if you have a male and a female twin, th- I mean, obviously you keep the male and you throw away the female, right? <laughs> twins are creepy, but if one of them's a boy, that's the one you keep and you get rid of the girl twin. Um, right. Right. Whereas in this, it's... Uh, it's kind of the opposite. I mean, obviously the the boy twin comes back with his white male privilege, but he's been dead for a while. His white male undead privilege. His his white (laughs) lurker privilege, yeah. Um, And and he's been like watching her and following her and just being like super creepster guy. I mean, the very last he's been sad. The very last thing he does is kiss her square on the mouth. Goodbye. Yeah. Right. Yeah. What? And 
I, I do. I always remember when it comes to hearth, um, there's a line of Giles's in the first, in the, not the pilot, in the first episode of Buffy, where he's talking to Xander about his friend, about Xander's friend being killed by a vampire. Mm-hmm. And he says, when you look at your friend, when you look at him, you're not looking at your friend, you're looking at the thing that killed him. Right, right. And, you know, maybe Hearth himself wasn't that creepy in real life. Let's hope so. Let's give him that. <laughs> I, I, fingers crossed. So it's interesting because earlier, uh, Vicky, I think you were the one talking about how uh, season eight, the season eight comics put so much work into like immediately they were trying to front load all the Frey stuff. They're like, obviously Frey is what we're building towards. So we need to start getting that stuff out. Um Making it making it feel like the the future of Frey was sort of uh, given importance, um, and I and you're right, I agree with that. But ironically, we this is basically all we ever get of Frey. She's got the crossover in season eight, which mm-hmm. is what two or three issues. I don't even remember. It wasn't that long. Yeah. And then she's got one of the short stories in Tales of the Slayer, mm-hmm. um, which is super short. I mean, it's it's good, but it's super short. Um, and it's weird. And it is kind of weird. Like, because it's like, this isn't where we go. I know. I know. <laughs> um, yeah, for for listeners who may or may not know, it's uh, in Tales of the Slayer, the, the short that she features in, which is called Tales, um, is about her. It takes place after the main book of Frey, obviously, because uh-huh. she has the scythe and she knows she's a slayer. And then uh, she she opens a, I don't remember, she opens a box or whatever in a six-armed mutant monkey jumps out and steals the scythe from her and she chases it across the city and ultimately it leads her to some hidden library somewhere with a mosaic giant mosaic floor that looks like the scythe and the whole point of the story basically was to get to let her to let Frey read the history of the slayer line and that was it that's all it was um see i don't know that was kind of weird and the only it seems to me like the only reason to do that is if there's going to be more fray. Like you're setting up future storylines for her and this character has never come back, which is a shame. I would love to see some more in this world with these characters. So I personally am going to like every other Buffy fan. I'm going to be looking at the background shots in the nevers. Oh yeah. Because if there is not a scythe in the background <laughs> at some point, I will be woefully disappointed. Right. The the scythe floor mosaic and tales from the Slayer. I was like, who built that? Right. Like, was that supposed to be built by the, you know, the, I don't even know who built the that guardians thing. at some point. Yeah. But, but I guess while they were waiting, I they were super know. bored and they built like a whole floor scythe mosaic. <laughs> I mean, they had time. <laughs> they had time. Yeah. yeah. Going back to something that Vicky said that I'd like, honestly, I'd like to hear her explore more and for me just to hush up and learn has to do with, uh, with the trauma aspect of things. Because, I mean, Whedon loves putting his audience through the ringer by putting his characters through the ringer. And, okay, let's figure it out here. Frey, no parents. Mm-hmm estranged from the older sister because (laughs) well 
thinks her twin is is dead because of her because of her right and then of course there's Lou mm-hmm. who she has formed this big chosen si- family older with, sister this big sister yeah. relationship with and oh my god it it just ah uh, oh. I, I know we don't have to be spoiler-free, so, okay. Hearth, of course, turns out to be a lurk. Right. And he's kind of, you know, head lurk. He's he's the big bad because he's right. he's a he's a lurk, a vampire, who has the Slayer memories and dreams and everything. Right. So so, so the, the vampire who turned Hearth, Icarus, mm-hmm. great name, um, isn't the big bad, but is kind of set up. Right. Is it possible to have a straw man big bad? Is, <laughs> do we have a straw bad? A straw bad? A straw bad? Yeah, um, yeah, absolutely. But then... I love the way he goes out, by the way. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. But then, you know, Lou, who is this total innocent in mm-hmm. this hellscape of a world, still manages to be this total innocent. Well, we know what's going to happen to her in a Whedon story. Yeah. And There's no love interest in this story, so where are we? What could we possibly mine for the most, for the most traumatic storytelling possibilities? It's got to be that young innocent girl that's so endearing yeah, I mean, and sweet. I mean, so help me, if there'd been a puppy, it would have been the puppy. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And if there's a puppy in the Nevers, I'm 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 done. <laughs> I'm done. He's gonna make me care about that dog, and then and then a coach is gonna run over it. Yeah. It, it's, I. I know this. I know this. And we don't just kill Lou. Mm. It's done in order to spur her to action. Did anybody else think um, Samuel L. Jackson in Avengers? No? Just me? No, I hadn't. Just me. But that's good. I mean, he obviously, Fury doesn't kill... Colson, but you know the whole bit to get Cap to action is to literally dip the playing cards in Colson's blood. Right. Yeah. Which pretty dark, pretty dark. <laughs> yes. I mean. I mean those, yeah. I mean, those mm-hmm. were near mint. <laughs> right. Damn him. <laughs> the hell was he thinking? Who does that? The biggest sin committed in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. <laughs> Um, All right, Vicky. And of course, Frey has to, there has to be payback for what Urkon did, Mm -hmm. which oddly enough is one of my favorite parts of this, but I love it. um, Yeah. Talk, if you would, Vicky, talk a little more about the, how, how trauma is kind of used in, in Frey. I think that the trauma, like there's, there's lots of different sorts of traumas that are around in Frey like there's uh that for Lou she can't get her medication there's like the trauma of you know there's poverty there's unstable living there's lots of threats the lurks interestingly enough are not seen as that big of a threat yeah there's not that many of them people just think it's like some weird like druggy guys Mm. um and I think guys is, I don't think there's, are there any female lurks? 
I think Ooh. they're all kind of doodly. 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 I think you're right. I don't remember. I'm fine. Oh, oh, wait. Well, hang on. Uh, I'm looking at it digitally, so I don't know what page number that is. But um, when right after we first see Icarus feeding, um, when his face is all covered in blood and he's holding a, a interestingly, a blonde woman in his arms that he's just fed from. Uh, there's two lurks that are talking to him, and one of them is a female. I think I'm pretty sure that's oh. a female, but um, huh. but the fact that I couldn't even think of that, so I'm I'm continuing to flip and finding all the scenes with um, lurks, and yeah, they're they're ninety nine percent doodly, as you said. There's some like this kind of like bullying guy. Uh, yeah that Lou sits on and he's the one that says that um, my mom says lurks are people God got sick of, which is interesting. Uh So there's, there's some sort of a religion in this world, but there's lots of fighting. I mean, she's a thief Mm -hmm. to survive. She's lost her brother. She has an estranged relationship with her sister. Like a lot of the trauma, um, like, and deals with loss and it's not just like like poverty or societal striations um or whatever governance exists in this world Mm -hmm. um plus there's the the mutants and the radiation but that seems to be like where his focus is and it's where his focus usually is it's what he does to his audience it's it's always like death and loss Mm-hmm. And that is what Urkon does um, in murdering Lou, is to give her another trauma that's supposed to awaken her powers, which is interesting because the loss of her twin brother doesn't do that. It's the loss of Lou that does that. And my issue doesn't have page numbers which i'm just now realizing like that seems to be an oversight well i think sometimes uh my my co-host on gobbledy geek arlo and i run into this a lot yeah i'm flipping through my uh hardcover collection it doesn't have page numbers um oftentimes he's reading single issues and i'm reading trade collections or whatever and so if there are page numbers they're different so we can't ever refer to oh. yeah if you look at page 33 well that's a different page yeah. for me than it is for him but anyways well, towards the end she thinks um my reading glasses are probably necessary <laughs> let's let's get those um i'm pissed like this rutting beast can't conceive I'm a lifetime of pissed, of strong, of muscle built over bruise. I'm slick with power, and I feel the fight as it changes, as it flows, everything into place, perfect, and I finally do what I was born to do. And I just wrote female rage. Like, and I feel that's finally, like, all of the, like, I mean, it's also super relevant to, you know, all time with the female rage. Um, and it's, 
really powerful and it also speaks to trauma too and she says muscle built over bruise it's not muscle built over bone it's it's wounds like she is wounded at her core and she is finding the rage now with this to fulfill her legacy which is not her heritage evidently yeah um I, I, I feel like that's trying to lead me into uh, one of my patented um, fight choreography discussions. But I'm gonna ho- I'm gonna postpone that because I feel like we have some more that we could say about some of the characters. Um, I love the female rage aspect you just brought up. As I'm flipping through here, I'm also I'm paying attention to Hearth and trying to see, like what what do I think about that character? Um, like I just got to the scene where we flash back and we see how he survived, like how he didn't actually die. And um, I should have mentioned this when I was talking about Carl Moline's art earlier. Not only one of the, one of the things that a good comics artist has to do is not just be able to draw pictures of people cool <laughs> or backgrounds, but panel layout is another thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, mm-hmm. the panel layout in this is just complex enough um to make the pages interesting and to, to give you some dynamic flow, but not so much so that you ever get lost or it's very, it's confusing. And so um, like in that instance, I'm specifically thinking of earlier when Frey, when, when Malaka was thinking back to when Hearth died, you know, she's being held out by Icarus in one hand and Hearth's held in the other and he drops her. And so the last thing she sees as she's falling off the building is Icarus biting Hearth. And she's like, okay, He's dead. When we flash back to his perspective, we see that as she falls out of panel, Hearth, who's this timid little geeky guy with glasses, because he has the uh, Slayer dreams or, or heritage or whatever, he knows what's happening. He realizes that if he's going to survive this, he needs to do something. And so that's what causes him to reach in and take a bite out of Icarus's face and get some blood and that's how he becomes a vampire. Um, yeah. I wanted that to lead me into discussing hearth as a character, but I know, I'm not sure where to go. What do you guys think about hearth? If so, if Malaka is the embodiment of female rage, what is hearth? I joked earlier about his, his white male privilege. Is that what he is? Oh, Wow. I mean, I like that. Like, I think he, because, like, the way she deals with her trauma is through justice. Mm-hmm. Like, more yeah. so, and and also healing with her sister. Like, the, the healing that she has is with her her feminine family, her female family and allies. And she doesn't try to heal with hearth. I mean, she can't, but he does seem to be white male privilege. And I mean, it's pretty white. This is a pretty white comic. Yes. Oh yeah. Yeah. And that's a whole separate discussion we can have about Whedon. Yeah. Um, Cause that's a real flaw in his stuff. Mm-hmm. Are, that there, being are said, there any persons of color in this at all? I mean, the lurks are gray, but they don't count. Um, if so, they're background characters without lines. Yeah. Yeah. And it's it's really also vague. Yeah. 
Yeah. But, yeah, I mean, Hearth really is, and I, I mean, I'm, I'm very conscious of the fact you're talking about Hearth as vampire. Mm-hmm. Okay? We don't have a lot of pre-vampire to, Hearth, yeah. Yeah, we, we, don't, we don't have that. He did look up to his sister, though, because he wanted to go out thieving with her. So, I mean, there was a relationship there. But Hearth as vampire is just... Well, I mean, he's like all vampires, right? He's, he's just like total id. Mm-hmm. He wants what he wants when he wants it, and he wants it now. What was... Help me out here. Uh did they just call him the anointed one? That or the he... annoying one if you were Spike. There you go. Yeah, that that was it, right? That's all we knew him as is the annoying one or the anointed one. He didn't right. have a name. Um, I feel like Hearth is Joss's attempt to kind of revisit that concept because here's he's not as young as the anointed one was, I don't right. think. Um, although he does look younger than Frey because obviously he hasn't aged. How many years ago was it? That they said ten. That he died. No, it can't. It can't be that many. I don't. I don't. There's remember. not that. There's not that much difference in there. Nah, I don't think so. Okay. Um. But I mean, he is the the slight. Um. Like every every pre-vampire glimpse or explanation of him we get, he's he's shy and awkward, at least partially because he has these dreams that he can't make sense of. Um. Right. And here he is. Like until the very end when he's actually involved in the fighting, he never looks, he never gets angry. He never raises his voice. uh, He never looks like a monstrous vampire. He's very understated. I mean, he says over the top things and he's obviously sinister and, and uh, you know, intimidating, but he just looks like a, a geek. Like I'm here. He's giving his little Hitler speech or whatever to his amassed uh, cronies. And He's not raising his voice. He's not pumping his fist. He's not in vamp face. He's he's a little kid playing Overlord. Mm-hmm. Um, which I don't know is is maybe a thing that Joss would have liked to have done with the Anointed One at some point. Maybe, but maybe it's harder to cast an actual young person in that role. Um, they just become the annoying one instead. Um, and him being white patriarchy, like like never wearing his vamp face all that much, being just like, you know, a guy that speaks to that too. Yeah, because he's, actually he's mostly just like him, like his formerly human visage. Yeah, Hearth even points out to to Malaka at one point the fact that Icarus. Or she says, you don't even look like one of them. And that's, I think, maybe the only time or one of the very few times that we see Hearth in vamp face when he turns around and he puts on the vamp face and he's like, you know, I, I, we can choose what we look like. They just prefer this look or whatever. Um, yeah. But yeah, not, you know, 90% of the time we see him as just a, a kid, just a human. I mean, I'm I'm flipping through here and even as he's rotting... Even as Hearth is riding the dragon into battle, mm-hmm. he's just sitting cross-legged on, on its back. Right. It, it's, you know, he's not standing up in some sort of victory. Ah, I shall bring hell upon earth. Right. You know, he's just 
he 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 is. He he looks like um a slightly built teenager. Yeah. Mhm. Um of course he's he's not that and we have this crazy battle scene. One of the other things that Whedon is so good at is building family and building community. Yeah. So so of course we have this whole thing with with Frey where she kind of rallies the the residents of the underworld to fight mm-hmm. instead of to just sort of, you know, hang out and take it. And in, you know, in classic form, they don't want to fight. They, they, but they're, they're brought around to her way of thinking. Which that is, that is a trope. And I mean, yeah. Whedon uses it in other, I mean, it he uses it in Buffy all the time too, but Sometimes that can play. That's another one of those things that can play as either forced or awkward or, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes even in the good examples of it, you're like, well, that's just one of those tropes. Like you have to have a scene like this in a story like yeah. this. But again, for some reason, the pacing and the scripting and the way this these eight issues are laid out, that also felt real it felt natural and real i was never frustrated well i mean i was kind of frustrated but i was not inappropriately frustrated by her her friends and neighbors not believing her and then when they finally did come around and they showed up and then when aaron you know brought the police in and everything um none of that felt forced and there was never a time when i rolled my eyes at it it all felt very natural yeah i i actually really like the speech about how they all they used to watch the westerns and in in the yeah. western, there was always this thing called the last stand. Yeah, and then, yeah, I I I love that. Bit. And then Aaron shows up and said, "Yeah, there was this other thing called the thing cavalry." Called the cavalry. <laughs> and okay, okay. Also, being a Doctor Horrible fan. Nice. Which which of course comes way after Frey. There's a line in Doctor Horrible about uh, Captain Hammer dropping a car on Doctor Horrible's head. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I just want to point out that literally happens in Frey. Yes. Aaron drops a flying car um, on Icarus, Ic, Ic, Icarus's, Icari, on Icarus's <laughs> head. Icky's head. Icky's head. Um, yeah. So Vicky said something that I wanted to kind of jump on, which was, um, that Frey deals, I think I'm getting this right, Vicki, make sure I am, that Frey deals with her trauma through justice. Was that right? Yes, maybe. Yeah. It's... <laughs> <laughs> Let me see where you're going, and if I like it, you're right, and if you don't like, if I don't like it, you're wrong. Thank you for giving me flashbacks to grad school. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so Urkon has to be dealt with, uh-huh. and it is, it's, you know, it, it's what Vicky said I thought was fascinating because she is, she's totally right. Her big, uh, Frey's big sister, Erin is all about the law. Frey's all about justice. Yeah. And Urkon has to be dealt with for killing Lou. And that wonderful bit about he was a teacher, he was even a friend. For a friend, I make it quick. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Another thing that we've seen, you know, versions of that played out in other Whedon stories, including Buffy, 
I mean, I we I feel like it lands better here than it did in Buffy season seven when Buffy all of a sudden was like, I think I need to keep, kill Anya now. <laughs> yeah, it, it, yeah, it's better in this. Yeah, it's yeah. way better in this. Um, well, okay, so let's talk a little bit about Aaron because the relationship between uh, Mel and Aaron is beautiful. I love the way it's dealt with. I love the the scenes that they get together and they're falling apart. You know, their their separation felt natural uh, in hindsight, finding out what it was about. And then as they come back together and the whole cavalry scene, that all felt great and satisfying. So what do you guys think about Aaron? I like Aaron. Okay. I like her too. I mean, Aaron's trying to just, just like Frey, Aaron's trying to find her way in this world. And for her, she wanted structure. And working in law enforcement gave her that structure. I don't really think she's on a power trip or anything like that. Mm-hmm. I think she wants the structure. I mean, this in the beginning, that is just in chaos. In the beginning, they certainly set it up for us to think that's what's going on. Like when she mm-hmm. first shows up uh, to arrest Mel or whatever. Yeah. Certainly, they want us to think, oh, she's the the by the book, self righteous. Uh, law-abiding sister um i love i love the whole aaron is about the law and mel is about justice that's that's a fantastic read and and it's one of those uh whedon-esque dichotomies that mel is the one that's all about justice but she's also the thief like that <laughs> she, she's about protecting people and doing what's right um but her whole day job is that she's a thief well, see, and, and again, this just goes back to Whedon having such fun with this idea of, of dichotomy and of twin. I mean, this whole idea, Hearth is literally the evil twin, <laughs> you know, just, just not an identical one. But, you know, law is, you can argue that law is the opposite side of the coin of justice. Mm-hmm. He, he just, he loves that stuff. And once you start looking for it in, in Whedon's work, it's everywhere. This idea of flip sides. I, I forgot when, when we were, were talking, first talking about the, the Malacca hearth uh, duology there or whatever. I wanted to bring up the notion of that this is Joss sort of toying with the idea kind of subverting that the oldest Buffy truism of one girl in all the world, which granted that it are by this point, it had already been dealt with on the show because you already had faith. Um, so it was no longer just one girl in all the world. And obviously by the end of the series, it is far from just one girl in all the world. Um, but the, the Mel and hearth thing is almost like, um, this is not a story about one girl in all the world. This is a story about twins, like the two. Um, and also a thing that is dealt with eventually in one of the, the season comics. I don't think it was eight, probably nine or whatever is they brought in, although I think it turned out to not be true. They brought in a male slayer. Yeah. Was that true? Yeah. I don't think he had slayer powers. I think he just wanted to be a slayer, but this story never really plays that up, but you could kind of look at Hearth as a little bit of a hint towards the conceit of a male slayer. 
Well, sure, because he does. He gets he gets the heritage. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think I think that's legit. And when he comes in on this like dragon demon thing, mm-hmm. like it's the womb. Yeah. That is the gateway, and that's what he's. So he's riding. So this dragon demon thing is female. Female. Mm-hmm. And he is controlling her and her reproduction. <laughs> Sound familiar? Wow. Wow. And that's also the first time that Aaron sees him, I think. Like, I think that's sees, yeah. Yeah, that's right. I think you're right, yeah. Because she's like, oh, my God, it's Hearth up there. Man, that's good. That's that's good, Vicky. I hadn't, hadn't picked up on the whole controlling a woman's reproduction. Damn. Yeah. Okay. And yeah, that's, don't... I mean, and that's more con- the conceit of a, a male half-slayer vampire guy right (laughs) (laughs) but and then he like and when you know when malaka gets swallowed and then um he is talking to aaron i mean he does more of his he's just awful like i loved watching you push her away ha 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 like that was so much fun because I'm mm-hmm. the patriarchy. Hearth definitely <laughs> leans more towards the uh, the Angelus side than the sort of Spike side, right? Yeah. Because both of those characters you can look at as uh, the vampiric exaggeration of the original human's sort of nature. Angelus was the all of the worst and and Liam was kind of a bad person. <laughs> it was all of the worst bits of uh, Liam exaggerated uh, ad infinitum, uh, whereas Spike was kind of some of the best. I mean, mm-hmm. he did terrible things, mm-hmm. but anyways, you know what I'm saying. Um, man, that's good. You shook me with the whole controlling the reproduction thing. Well, um, and. One completely unrelated point that I do want to get in, because if we're going to do a podcast on Frey, I want to talk about the word Frey. Oh, okay, yeah. Because I always, I loved, Whedon pays such attention to names. Right. And the idea of, you know, something that is frayed is something that's fallen apart. Damn. Mm-hmm. And Damn. Again. You see, All right, and, you two, come on. This is the thing. I'm always convinced that when I say something like that, that everybody else is going to have the reaction of, well, yeah, duh. <laughs> no, I so. hadn't. I was, I was only thinking <laughs> okay. of Frey in the, in terms of like the combativeness or the, the, the right. aggressive. Yeah. Jeez. So on one hand, on one hand, again, flip sides, on one hand, you have a fray that's a battle. And on the other hand, you have a fray that's something that is, ha- has been worn out and is falling apart. And God damn it. you can read Ooh. that in so many different ways. And that's technically all of their last names. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Ooh. Isn't that just cool? That's awesome. Man. For more insights on this, please pick up <laughs> Faith and Choice in the works of Joss Whedon. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Where you can read the entire Frey chapter, which is about twins <laughs> and names. <laughs> Oh man, sometimes, sometimes, well, usually, but uh, sometimes my guests really justify the whole reason for me doing this podcast. <laughs> I'm telling you, don't mess with Whedon academics. We're really fun, 
but we know our shit. We Indeed. really do. Indeed. God, I think I literally got chills with that whole fray thing. Damn Ooh. you. Damn you. Um, <laughs> I love it so much. All right. I do. I do want to talk about because I'm I'm building a reputation of for actually I started building the reputation on the Avatar Returns, my my Avatar and Legend of Korra podcast. But I'm kind of known as the guy that talks about fight choreography in animation oh. and and comics and television. And uh, goddamn, Carl Moline. I'm gonna I'm gonna give Carl the the. I'm sure Joss had some of the gave some screen direction or whatever. Um, but this kind of stuff usually comes down to the artist and how they stage stuff. And um, fight choreography really impresses me when. Uh, especially in comics, because you're looking at a sequence of static images. Uh, sometimes stuff can get lost in that. Like you can just show three panels of she punches this guy, kicks this guy, and then flips this guy. Um, but depending on how the artist represents it and the size of the panels and the layout, it, it could either look like a flow, it could look natural, or it could look like three unconnected static images. And Carl Moline in this book does, I think, a superlative job of... Am I using that word correctly? Academics tell me if I'm using that word correctly. Um, does a tremendous job of setting up realistic, if superhumanly exaggerated, um, mm -hmm. choreography. Like she moves the way she moves. Like I'm looking at the scene where she flips through the wall when she first gets the scythe and she flips through the wall and, uh, and lands between those two lurks that are attacking the girl and says, let's go. I wish we had page numbers so I could refer to it, but, um, uh, the couple of pages there where this fight takes place, um, her movements are so graceful and athletic and her, uh, the way she shifts her body weight from one leg to the next and how a punch with her right hand leads into her body spinning and a kick with her left foot, all of that stuff. Like, I don't know enough about Carl Moline. He may be a martial artist. Like he may have studied martial arts or whatever, and that mm -hmm. may feed into this, but there is a very, very like natural flow to the way she moves. And I really appreciate that kind of stuff in fight choreography. And also you can never see her stunt doubles face. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. That, that was, that was slaw, but well done. <laughs> um, I also, okay. So, one of the things I, I really appreciate about comics is, and, and I've discovered there are a lot of traditional academics who don't know, I got to be careful how I phrase this, who don't know how to read them. Mm -hmm. And I don't mean that literally, they don't know how to read the words, but it's, it's really good. All comics are a blend of the visual and the words. Yeah. Really good ones understand. Sandman did this beautifully understand that it that both parts are important so it's not just that you are reading a six panel page and it's left right z left right z mm -hmm. left right um Moline had a lot of fun with doing splash pages which spread over you know two pages with doing three panel pages where one is tilted mm -hmm. which almost gives you the feel of the camera being tilted yep 
and and the action being off center. I mean, they do, they do some really cool stuff with this, and especially in the fight scenes. Yeah, I, I talked about this a lot when on uh, the Avatar Returns when we were uh, discussing the Avatar comics, um, written by Gene Lu and Yang with art by the the Japanese art duo Gurahiru. Um, those artists, like we we myself and Arlo and Eric Sippel, were really struck by that art team. Uh, and they did something, their layouts were a little more simple, um, not quite as uh, exaggerated as some of the stuff that Carl, that Maline does here, but okay. they did something to a uh, similar effect where they kept splash pages and double page spreads to a minimum. A lot of comic artists overuse that. And so it starts to lose its impact. Um, they kept it to a minimum and only used those for truly like impactful in your face moments and characters breaking border panels only happens occasionally. And it's really to accentuate action in a scene or the tension of like a character falling out of panel falling out of frame or whatever. Um, yeah. That's what I'm talking about when I say that panel layout is just as important as a, an artist's ability to like draw human anatomy or whatever. Um, there really can be, you can have the greatest like, anatomical artist and if they don't know how to do a panel layout it can be either boring or jumbled or whatever and mm -hmm. Moline is fantastic in the way he the choices he makes in the artwork. Well and and that's that's a whole thing about about comic art is it's not necessarily I mean yeah it's anatomically correct in in you know the number of heads and hands and that kind of thing. Well there are demons that but, break the rules and, but and yes. there are demons there is the big horn sheep. <laughs> But it's about good comic art is about as much what you leave out as what you put in mm -hmm. because you, you want to draw the eye to certain places. And again, I, th I think Maline does a beautiful job on it. And Andy, who I'm calling him by his first name, and I, to my knowledge, I've never met the gentleman. <laughs> But it sounds weird to call him Mr. Owens, doesn't it? Well, doesn't to me, sound... because I knew him for so long, but yeah. Sound... But honestly, inking is also an art. It, it's Absolutely. Not, it, it's not a simple matter of um, of just throwing some, some digital ink on a page and, and calling it done, uh, particularly in a comic like this where so much is done in shadow. Mm-hmm. And what you choose to shadow, because that indicates where the light source is. So you can get some really dramatic panels there with uh, with dark and light going on. I mean, there's the classic mall rats bit of calling an inker a tracer. Yeah. Or was yeah. that, wait, was that mall rats or chasing what? Amy? Damn, I can't remember which one it was in now. But anyways, um, because of that, I used to give Andy shit all the time and call him a tracer, even though I really did learn the importance. I, I knew this intellectually before, but uh, I didn't really feel the importance of an anchor and see how how um, like how layered their work is until I saw Carl Moline's pencils, which are extraordinary. And I got to actually sit there and watch Andy ink. And I was like, oh, crap now it looks three-dimensional <laughs> just the weight that one line will have versus how thin another line is it's it's a fucking art form people anchors are not tracers um yeah i have nothing to add to that <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh, i will add 
add to the things that are left out that I think that the excellence of the choreography is accentuated even when there is no, like, the fight doesn't happen. So when you leave that out of the story, like with the car being dropped right. on Icarus, because the lead-in is very much like Showtime, by the way, because she's like, why don't we just show them how? <laughs> like, or, wait, that's not what it says. It says, why don't we just show them? Um, but it is that lead-in, like, we're going to prove it and do the fight. And then the car falls on him, which is so great. Um, but you're expecting a big fight scene there. Because the page before yeah, uh, is one of my favorite pages because it features her facing off with Icarus and she's got the scythe now. And so across the bottom of the page, you've got these, these three panels of her, of Frey, looking at the scythe and then sort of dropping it to her side. And so now she's unarmed and she looks up and face, you know, to face him. And she says, faith, meaning, you know, what have you got? I've got faith. So you're like, oh, oh, here it is, man. It's on. Here comes the big fight. <laughs> and then the next is a double page spread of a flying car or truck, actually, just dropping on Icarus's <laughs> head. And you're like, that's a very, that's a very Whedon-y, uh, you know, breaking of tension or subverting of, of what you think is about to happen. And it's it's glorious. I love it. Especially, I think I just noticed this for the first time. I, I'm not entirely sure I ever picked up on the fact. So you've got the big whomp sound effect under this uh-huh. truck that lands on him. But a little bit smaller, sort of integrated into the smoke and fire of this crashing car, is the word smoosh. Smoosh. Uh-huh. <laughs> so <laughs> that's another thing we should mention. Uh, I, I don't know her. I'm not familiar with her name. I don't know how much work she's done, uh, but this series was lettered by Michelle Madsen. And uh, it depends, like different art teams have a different flow, different companies use a different thing. Sometimes the letterer is the one that determines where thought balloons and word balloons and that kind of stuff go. And so they also can have, like you can have the greatest artist, you know, penciler and inker in the world, and then get it, give it to the letterer and they can cover up all the best stuff by throwing a word balloon there. Um, that's another thing that contributes to the flow is a, a letterer knowing exactly if indeed the letterer is the one that placed this stuff. Sometimes the artist does it, but uh, mm-hmm. that also can control the flow and help someone who's not as familiar with comics be able to follow, you know, who's talking in what order and where does your eye go to next? And she does a very good job. So I also just want to point out and okay, it's, it's a spread on, on the issue eight. Yes. Uh huh. That's one of my favorites. That's a great image. It is Mm -hmm. just that image. No words whatsoever of her holding the scythe on her shoulder. I think that's the cover. And that, isn't it? I think it's a cover. Is it not? Cause this is in the trade. Yeah. And, that that stare in her eyes as she's just looking off um there are certain images that just really i don't know resonate in comics that one for some reason always reminds me of the i can't tell you the issue number but it's the cover of astonishing x-men of whedon's run on that with cyclops with with Kitty and Cyclops. Yeah. Or wait, no. Oh, you mean Colossus? Kitty and Colossus? 
Kitty and the Colossus. Yes, yes, whoa, yes, yes. Cyclops. Whoa. Um, yeah, uh, I agree. When she has seen him for the first time yeah. at the end of the previous issue, that just there are no words. There don't need to be words. Um, and I think it does. I, I think there are certain images that just really show the power of the art form. Yeah. Agreed. And for me, that's one of them. Um, so we, we've alluded to, I, I'm, so now I'm flipping through the final issue. I did just want to say, because you pointed out that cover and how that, what an iconic image that is. Um, and we talked a little bit about her character design, but she major props to Joss and or Carl, whoever, whoever played the lion's share of physically designing her. Um, she's a very visually unique character. Like mm -hmm. she has a, she has a distinctive, that's another thing that comic artists, some are great at and some are less so is giving characters individual faces that yes. you can, if there were mm -hmm. no words here, you could, you would know who a character was. And she, I, I love her look. Like you, you could see, you could see a black and white version of that cover with no context and go, Oh, that's Frey. I know who that is. Mm -hmm. So, and I, I'll be, I'll be upfront with you. Not all artists can do that. No, no. I have, I have read many an issue where I'm okay. I like the X-Men. So I've read many an issue where I'm like, is that Jean or <laughs> yes. is that rogue or, I feel like female characters in comics suffer from this more than men because a lot of artists choose other features to accentuate on female characters than their wow, facial features. Wow, is that a diplomatic way of putting it? Yeah, yeah. That's very impressive. Thank you. Um, but it but it's also true. Male superheroes, in particular, do tend to have a certain look. And in, in the, they, they tend to be muscle bound and they tend to have very square jaws. Mm -hmm. And yet there is very little um, chance of you confusing one character for another. It's with females. Yeah. It really is. Where, mm -hmm. And you, how to put this, you hit the nail on the boob. <laughs> It, um, it is. They're not focusing on, on anything else. Although hair is a lot of fun to draw. Yeah. Um, there, there are still far too many artists out there who are really focusing on, uh, on the bust. I mean, it was especially bad in the late nineties and the early two thousands oh. when this, yeah. when this was coming out. So setting it in its, uh, temporal place, um, makes this even more impressive considering mm -hmm. what other stuff was coming out at the time that this was coming out. Super impressive. How, how good this looks and how unique it looks. And hang on just a second. Although if I say this, you're going to know who, who I'm talking about. There was an artist in this time period who was especially known for his almost utter inability to draw feet. Liefeld, Rob Thank Liefeld. You. That's it. Yeah, pretty. He, he for for him, women stopped having any interest he, whatsoever as he got down to the feet. 
he and, he has always been atrocious. His art has not improved with age, and somehow, despite the fact that everybody I personally know thinks that he's a freaking joke, somehow he there has been a, a a renaissance where people talk about him as if he was a legit, serious, worthy of respect artist. And I just there are there are entire web pages, not just one, more than one, devoted to the fact that this man cannot draw feet. I mean. He, he was, he was, I would say his inability to draw feet is the least of his sins. I'm just going to put it out there. He was a terrible, terrible. Okay. Artist. Okay. That's maybe not the least, but, it, but it is a venal sin as opposed to a mortal one. Yeah, he has others. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. The, the image guys, the first round of image artists that left Marvel to form their own company. Mm-hmm. There were there were a handful in there that were legitimately good at the time and continue to be oh, yeah. so today, and then there were some that who were, weren't who, who weren't yeah. <laughs> um. So I wanted to uh, I wanted to ask you guys about well we didn't really talk about Urkon we've mentioned the twist or we've mentioned that the twist that Urkon has to be dealt with you know mm-hmm. there needs to be justice I don't think we've specified what the <laughs> what that was about. So, um, did you guys? I am gonna jump backwards first. Real quick. Oh, okay, yeah. Back to the image of Frey because I had to look and find the other one because okay. she she is portrayed a lot differently, which is really good. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are two fat jokes in here. Are there or fat shaming insulty places? Okay. Um, that I think are still really problematic, and one of the first one. <sighs> Is when she's going past the henchman uh-huh. and he says, you're late. And she goes, you're fat. Yeah, I remember that. Like, one. Yeah. Like, wow, thanks. Um, like, that's that's fabulous. Yeah, that's a thing. That, that's a thing one, that could have come out of and, and probably did come out of early Buffy, though. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I feel that that's also something like like that we don't remark upon with Whedon enough. Like we we do have a we we know about his problems with portraying characters that are not white, right? Yeah. And even when he does it, he usually does not do it super well. <laughs> um, but he also doesn't. He, I don't know how much he fat shames in Buffy, but he's definitely doing it here, because she's fighting uh, the bully guy and she calls him a fat piece of waste. Ha. Mm, yeah, that's true. Yeah. Which is, I mean, so, so that's supposed to be an insult. And he is the only character, I think, that is not skinny. Well, there is a, there's a there's a super obese vampire at one point. But I, don't, I think it's in one of the silent fight scenes when we're just sort of getting a montage of her fighting vampires. I can't mm-hmm. remember. But but yeah, as far as sort of our, our heroic characters or whatever. Yeah, they're all... Mm-hmm post-apocalyptically oh, skinny yeah. or skinny and he definitely makes equivocations of fat being bad mm-hmm. or evil or undesirable or you know something something shamey or not good so it's still in here yeah um even if she's drawn better um well okay anything else i mean i was I was going to give us an opportunity to say, to sort of name like our favorite moments or visuals or whatever. Uh, and, and we can still do that if you want. And we can talk about what happens to Urkan. But um, for the most part, I just want to make sure, because I know both of you have very meaningfully marked up 
pages of notes. <laughs> so if there's anything, <laughs> if there's anything that we haven't covered that you really want to discuss, absolutely, please let me know. We have actually hit Mon. Okay. I, I agree. Um, I, it's so, it, it's so good. It's such a good yeah, comic. So good. I, I do. They're Frey, I think, and it's, it's a shame. I, I don't think Frey gets the, the love that it all, that it deserves. No, I, agree. I really don't think it does. So maybe we'll get some more attention paid to that. Literally just this morning. Um, uh, I think it was CBR comic book resources posted an article about Frey. Really? And, uh, I, I haven't read it yet. Apparently it's, it's referring more to, it's just talking more about the crossover into season eight. Um, but it was just a headline. I need to go and find it now. <laughs> it's just a headline about, uh, the Frey title and how nobody ever talks about it. And I'm like, yeah, how, how weird that on the day that I'm going to record a podcast about Frey, Absolutely. because no one ever talks about it. CBR posts an article about how no one ever talks about Frey. Yeah. It doesn't get the attention it deserves. Um, yeah. And not... I do, I do feel um, that I, I do want to know more about Urkon. Yeah. Yeah. He, so we haven't even mentioned the fact that he was kind of a minion that he was sent by, these two other demons. Um, so the book even opens with sort of a, a voiceover between these two demons saying, yeah, there's, there's another slayer and the watchers have found her now. So we need to, <laughs> we need to jump in and make sure uh, there's these two demons who are obviously manipulating, using Urkon to manipulate the slayer into becoming who she is. But with the thought that Urkon will then deal with her once, yeah. once she's outlived her usefulness or whatever, um, mm -hmm. so yeah, we don't even know, like I've, I get the sense there's a larger story there that could have been told. Um, and right, obviously yeah. we never get any more of that. We don't know what that was about, but, um, that's another thing that in, uh, in a longer form story, um, like if this series had continued, if it wasn't an eight issue miniseries, a, a lesser writer might have kept Urkon around, um, because, you know, he would have been sent there to manipulate the Slayer, but he gradually would have become friends with her. And so he would mm -hmm. he would push back against his mission or whatever. Um, and I don't really get that sense that that would have happened under Whedon's writing. Like by the end of this book, it feels like, sure, he does kind of like her, but he also was doing his job. And mm -hmm. uh, when they do start fighting, I don't get the sense that he's going to hold back. So, mm -hmm. no, I don't think he's going to hold back. And I, I, I think you raise a good point there, which is, and this ties into what Vicky said at the beginning about the feminist message of it. Urkon has been sent there to manipulate her. Yeah. And honestly, succeeds to a point. Mm -hmm. But then I think she does step into that whole Slayer role of, I'm, I'm not going to be manipulated by, by man lurk or demon and the scales of justice have to be balanced here for what you did. That's so uh, as someone who cannot swim and is terrified yeah. of water, that final battle, that, that fight between her and Urkan is mm -hmm. 
really something extra. <laughs> I just, I think it pays off. So in the very first issue, we got that reveal of, uh, is, is it, is it Garth? What's his name? I can't remember the fish guy. Oh, sushi boy. Yeah. I, is it, I don't remember his name. I think uh, Garth doesn't sound right, but anyways, uh, um, there's that reveal where she walks into a room that's all in shadow. And then all of a sudden the light comes up and she's standing on top of a glass floor of a giant tank or whatever. That was a great moment. And, and uh, that could have just been a great moment, but it actually pays off at the end where this fight takes place on top of the glass as she shatters it. She pieces it together. He never gets close to water. He doesn't help her out. What? And she finally figures it out. And so she breaks the glass and I was like, Oh, I feel you, Urkan. I'm right there with you, man. <laughs> Because I don't, I don't do water, so. But he doesn't drown. No, uh, I would have. That would have been the end of the fight. <laughs> that would have been the end of the fight if that was me. Okay. But yeah, he 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 does get the scene where he vomits up all the water he was just ingesting right before he gets a stake through the head. And I did flip through it. It's Gunther. Gunther, thank you. Ah, Gun yes. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, I I was drawing a blank on that one too. And that was going to bother me otherwise. <laughs> so, guys, I have had a lovely time, but I'm going to have to jump out of here. Yeah, I think we've hit the wall. Um, do you mm -hmm. have Do you have time to do the outro and, and tell people how to track you down? Or Heck do we yeah. need to cut and run? All right, so. Heck yeah. I'm sorry, but I do need to. It, yeah. it's, it's good. We're all good. I got um, it. So thank you both for doing this. This was a lot of fun. I'm going to say this was uh, successful, so there will be more comics episodes in the future, and you're both invited back anytime you want. Um, Dale, you want to let people know how they can stalk you online? Absolutely. You can stalk me online on all of the major social media platforms, Facebook, Twitter, um, <laughs> I'm not do. I'm not saying TikTok. I'm just not going to do it. Okay, good. <laughs> but... Um, I would very much like to chat comics, particularly Whedon comics with anybody out there who wants to talk. And you're going to have the link in there for Swapaka. Yes, I am. I believe. And also faith and choice in the works of Joss Whedon. Indeed. Among other Whedon-esque works. Okay. How's that? Very good. Very good. good. Uh, Vicki, what about you? I am also on most of the social media places. I'm on Facebook. I'm on Instagram. I'm technically on Twitter, but I don't generally do anything there other than get back off of Twitter. <laughs> yeah, God but, bless you. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. I can see things if I am tagged in them. Okay. Uh, um, I do check it every now and then. I have a website, and I finally updated it for the first time since April, my blog, uh, and that's VEWNavara.com. VEWNavara.com? Mm-hmm. Okay. I'll put that link in as well. Excellent. All right. Well, thank you both. And uh, thank you, everybody at home for listening. You can find links to this and all of our past episodes at the website conswithdead.com. You can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts. While you're there, please rate us or write us a review. That helps uh, find new listeners. And if you have questions for me or any of my guests, or if you'd just like to join the conversation, drop us an email at conswithdead at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter at conswithdead or reach out to us on Facebook at Conversations with Dead People. And next, hopefully the first, we're, we're going to dive into Angel. I'm waiting on some stuff to happen before we can start that. Or maybe there'll be another comics episode. Who knows? At some point in the not-too-distant future, Angel will finally begin. So 
Until then, grr arg, everybody. Grr arg. At once I awoke to a futuristic world There were flying cars and gigantic metal bugs I'd grown a beard, it was long and white But I knew that the girl would be coming very soon For though everything had changed, there was still